Welcome to After the Bell with your host, Laura. This podcast is a series of conversations with teachers, students, academics, and lifelong learners in an attempt to deconstruct some of the stereotypes around education. By focusing on what is both exciting and challenging about learning, I am hoping to elevate individual journeys and focus on the heart and passion within the education system. If you would like to know more about me, please head to my Instagram page at EducatingLaura. Thank you so much for deciding to be with me today, Monday, the 1st of March, and I am recording this on Saturday, but I will be going into school Monday or today when you're listening to do essay marking for the first year 12 creative sack. So that will be fun. I tend to leave those days with a bit of a migraine, so hopefully I do okay. Being back at year 12 has reminded me again how fast everything seems to go in VCE. So we did the first unit in about four and a half weeks and the next unit, the analyzing arguments unit, we're doing in about three and a half weeks. So it's a very quick turnaround. And I have found this year that that kind of cushioning that year 11 gives between year 10 and year 12 wasn't really done particularly well because of COVID last year. Not to say that it's anybody's fault. I'm certainly not blaming anybody, but I'm finding that the students just don't have some of the insight and understanding that I would expect. And I now have to really consider what knowledge is actually in my room. And I had this kind of, I don't know, confronting moment, I suppose, Friday afternoon where I was explaining the task and I had these really forlorn faces. And I said, am I you're not getting this what's going on here and I have really lovely kids and they just said what's what's the structure of this task what do you mean and because at year 10 with analyzing media it's very highly structured because most of the students are learning it for the first time and so it's good to give a structure but the problem at year 12 is that we tend to start removing all of those structures so that kids can write organically and just get into the task in a way that suits their writing but most of that support happens in year 11 in terms of scaffolding activities and tasks to help them find their own voice in their writing so that by year 12 they're good and a lot of that hasn't been done because of remote and because it's very hard to work individually with students online and so I have contacted Ben from the English lab and I'm going to do a really rush podcast with him rush by rush I mean get it out fast not you know a crap version of a podcast so I'm going to do that and get that out this week as well to support the year 12s in this sack my class as well hoping that they get a lot out of it because I just yeah I felt as though I wasn't doing a great job and I want to make sure that I'm kind of on top of it and supporting them as best I can after last year now, moving on to this episode, I have Shan. So her handle on Instagram is Teach and Change Lives. And I started following her pretty much when I first got on Instagram because I loved her handle and I love what she was about. And it was through her actually that I found out about a Cecily. And if you haven't listened to that episode, it's one of the first ones 
and it's called Assessly Impressed Me. And it is actually out now, that program. It's a software that supports teachers in assessing quick. And yeah, it's a really great software. They're doing some 30-day free trials. So definitely go and check them out at Assessly on Instagram. Anyway, Shan is an experienced educator. She has actually worked with students that have experienced extreme trauma. She's a primary trained teacher and she now works in an autistic school with autistic students. And I just really wanted to know what that was all about. I love her passion. We are of a similar generation in terms of teachers. And so we have some things to talk about regarding social media and our belief about education and our role as teachers and how that shifted and changed and I just love this episode. I really adore chatting to Shan and she's such an encouraging and warm and kind person. She always puts things up about the podcast for me just to help other people get to know it. And I just really appreciate everything that she does to support me as well. And I'm sure that you'll love this episode. And if you do, please share it on social media, tag me in it and tag Shan at Teach and Change Lives. And here is our chat. Hello, Shen. How are you? Good, Laura. How are you? It's so good to finally talk to you. (laughs) I'm really, really good. Exactly right. Exactly right. And I was just saying to you prior to starting to record, it's so lovely to see your face in real time and actually interacting with me rather than, you know, (laughs) I'd love to start by asking you what kind of student you were. Uh, I was a, just a good student. Mm -hmm. But I was just an average kid that, that didn't stand out too much and didn't um, misbehave ever. So I was never really noticed. Okay. Um, my brothers came after me so because I'm the oldest and they were noticeable people and nobody even realised that I was their sister. So I was just a middle-of-the-road kid, yeah, pretty good at sport but not like the best at sport, pretty good at academics but not the top, top of the class. So that was me. Good kid. So it's kind of coasted through getting the experiences without necessarily being defined by any one thing. Yeah, I was kind of good at everything. I mean, this sounds like gloating. I'm not. I wasn't an excellent, excellent person. I was just good at what I did and I did what the teacher said to do, you know, like I just obeyed them and did my schoolwork and I had, yeah, I think if I did get into trouble, it probably was like a really big deal, you know, even if the teacher just looked at me funny. So, Yeah. yeah, that was me. I was having a conversation with a STEM educator the other day and I was a similar type of student to you, relatively run-of-the-mill, was relatively good. I'm not so great at the sport, I will say, but I was relatively good at the things that I tried but nothing identifiable. And I, I actually found that really difficult at high school because I saw so many people finding their place and I really wasn't sure in high school yeah. what my place was because I wasn't, as you say, either amazing at anything or terrible at anything I just kind of fit in I think what saved me in that was the fact that I knew the rules of school I knew how to behave I knew how it all worked and so that was comforting for me and I was speaking to the STEM educator because I don't know about you but when I was at school STEM was not a thing we didn't teach that way and all the problem solving type stuff and the design is very very new amazing but very new And I said, for me as a student, I would have found that very, very challenging to walk into a classroom and be told, here's a problem, figure it out. Because that to me is not the rule of of school that I was comfortable with. 
do you do those kinds of things in your classroom or are you comfortable doing those kind of open-ended problem-solving tasks? I do because I have like a, a priority. Well, this year, 2020, I, I taught an all-boys class. So you have to change mm. the way you think as well when you're teaching just boys. And, yeah, I, I did a lot of that with them. But they have autism too, so um, you have to also kind of keep it structured but open-ended at the same time so that they can handle it. But, yeah, it is a challenge for me to do it, but I almost, like, push myself to do it because you're right, I was the same. I I would have struggled with that at school because I liked to follow mm. the rules and make my bookwork neat and do what the teacher said and, yeah, so yes. having free reign would have been difficult, yeah. Yeah, I think at the moment there's a great unlearn going on with educators of our era because how it was done and how we were taught is no longer what's actually the best model for our students so we've been trained at a time where it wasn't actually in yeah we're now working in schools where we're seeing the importance of and so we have to make the conscious effort to create or to evolve ourselves without the formal training or to ask for the formal training I think it's a really interesting time it's true and when younger teachers are coming in after us and they know all about it because well, number one, they probably learnt it at school and number two, they've also learnt it at uni. We're trying to keep up with that too, yeah. which is tricky. But I really agree with it because I feel like that's the way education should go because that's what we should be teaching the kids is being curious, asking questions, researching, finding out, persevering when something doesn't work, all those skills they need for life, which we didn't necessarily get at school. And schools are built for white middle-class girls you know, and so we need to change that so that anyone outside of that tiny little group of people will be educated fairly, basically, yeah. Yes. Mm. yes, I totally understand that and agree with that. And I think industry and professions outside of education are pushing for those skills and I think in a way educators and education have been dragging their feet a little. Yeah, I agree with that. Maybe a lot. <laughs> <Just> not- <laughs> so. Let's move move into your experiences in education before we go to this new role that you started in 2020, which I'm so excited to talk to you about. What other experiences have you had in education and as a teacher? Okay, so I started as just a primary school classroom teacher and have taught every year level to grade seven except for year one. Mm -hmm. Then in 2007, I was a prep teacher for the first round of prep in Queensland and I had come from grade two and it was scary. I actually cried oh. for about the first term because I think I'd expected the kids could like get their lunch boxes out, <laughs> stand in a oh. line. But they, they came so fresh to school that it was really, really hard. But mm. also the most rewarding year level I've ever taught. They grew so much in a yeah. year. It was just incredible. I loved mm-hmm. it. Um, And then I went to an early intervention program that they started here on the Gold Coast for children from prep to grade three who had were already disengaged from school and were already on the brink of being expelled from school when they're so little. Grade three. So what's that? Eight? Nine? Yeah. Yeah. So that was Mm. it was five, six, seven, eight year olds. So schools in our region all pulled money together and created this program and then I was the, the head teacher for that and we had kids come in for up to 16 weeks 
transitioning from our program back to their school, doing intensive behaviour management with them and with their schools, working with their parents, um, running a parenting program. It was huge. On staff was me, a psychologist, a speechy and a teacher aide. And we actually were in a house. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So we could have, uh, now I can't remember, it was a long time ago, but I think, I feel like we were only allowed eight at a time. So eight kids at a time. Mm-hmm. But they were like very pointy end of behaviour, really okay. full on. So that was amazing. Amazing. What kind of training do you get for that? Because what I will say is most of the interviews that I've done, when I talk about teacher training at university, the number one thing that comes up is the fact that there was not enough focus on behaviour management and real life skills in terms of how to deal with difficult behaviours, learning difficulties, problematic home lives. So what kind of training do you get for a role like that? Uh, I had zero training going into that. My, I just had wow. my own experience. So I was, um, I had just finished my master's and I had done um, a major in guidance counselling. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of had done some extra study in that area, I guess, about the social, emotional well-being of students. So I used that to apply for the job and I got it. So we were mm. training on the job. It was pretty intense. So what did you learn from that that you could offer to people listening now regarding those really challenging behaviours? I think teachers need to sit down and really think about the student as a person, where they've been. Most of the kids we had in that program were trauma, were from trauma. Yeah. So they had had a hard life in the first six years of their life, like things they'd experienced and seen that we, sorry, I'm getting emotional, that we yeah. might not ever see in our lives, you know. Yeah. And so I think if you stop and think where has this child been what have they been through? Where have they come from? You change the way you approach them. You lower your expectations of them academically and you just start to see them as a person. Do you know what I mean? I do. Like, that's pretty much what I learned from the program, yeah. yeah. Also I learned you cannot change their home life. Yeah. You can do everything possible to keep them safe, but you have them for six hours a day and in that time you've got to make the most of of making sure they feel loved, of building them up so that they can handle whatever comes their way in their life. It's interesting, yeah. isn't it? You feel as though, you know, perhaps perhaps in a year or, sorry, in a, in a day you've made this progress and let's say I'm using, you know, 10 centimetres, you've made 10 centimetres of progress in a day and they go home and yeah. that goes back to two centimetres. And so that's the thing yeah. with, with things like that is it's very challenging because you leave that situation feeling really uplifted and that you've gotten to this place and they come back the next day, not at the place you're at, and you have to start all over again and you have to have that empathy and compassion to understand that they've actually gone home to quite a difficult traumatic environment when you've gone home to not one. So I think that empathy is incredibly important in teaching. Yeah. I think, and I've been in this situation where you have expectations in your head as a teacher this is what we're doing today, this is my plan, and then that child comes in who's not had breakfast or hasn't had sleep or hasn't even been home or is in the same clothes as yesterday and your plan goes out the window for that child. They They need you to give them an apple and some cereal. They need you to just sit down and give them a hug if they're little and 
they they need time by themselves. You can't expect them to have any set learning happen according to your plan, you know? So yeah. when, I, when I got that, it changed how I taught. Yeah, I remember yeah. being in a parent-teacher interview and I was very, very aware of my boundaries, you know, and I remember being in a parent-teacher interview with a parent from a year 12 student that I was teaching and the student was going through a very challenging time. I knew some of it, but when the parent came in, they gave me even more information. And in the middle of that interview, and there was probably, a, a, you know, six other teachers in that room, including one of the assistant principals who was sitting next to me, she just broke down. And I said, are you okay? And she just said, I'm not coping. I, I just read, I literally, I read, and I couldn't even stop myself. I reached out and held her hand on the table. Yeah. And I said, do you need a hug or something? She goes, yeah, I really do. And we stood up in the middle of this parent-teacher interview mm. and I gave this mother a hug and it's so not what I've been trained to do, but it's like the human came. I couldn't stop it. I could not sit across the room cold from this mother. And I spoke to the assistant principal after because I was really conflicted by what I'd done. And obviously I would never do that with a student, but I didn't know what to, I really, I couldn't sit there and let this happen. And the assistant principal just said to me, you're a human first. You've got to go That's with right. your humanity first. And I was so great because I was really, I'm glad I got the feedback in the time because I think I would have gone home and really beaten myself up for doing that. But she just yeah. said to me, you're a human first. You know, you asked for consent, <laughs> you know. But I just yeah, felt right. for this poor woman who has was struggling with her child that I was teaching and at that time was probably quite influential over in year 12, and it is, we, we do need to talk more about the humanity in teaching, I think. That mother, Laura, would be still remembering that, you know, like what you did because it's all about heart, isn't it? And you really cared and that just would have meant so much to her that you listened, that you, you know that for that moment you stood in that same position with her and understood how she was feeling. Like, yeah, well, I hope so. Yeah, I think it's cool. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So can I ask why the decision to become a teacher? Uh, I think it was just born into me. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have three little brothers, so I just was, I guess, told from a young age to, like, watch them, keep an eye on them. Yeah. I taught my my little brother how to, you know, tie his shoelaces, write his name. Like, I just, yeah. just took it on, I guess, born bossy. Yeah. <laughs> But I actually did at uni a double degree, so I did education and psychology. Mm-hmm. And we were here in Queensland at Griffith, we were the first group to do the double. Um, and there was, well, maybe 12 of us by the end. So the psych students didn't want a bar of us because we weren't totally them. Yeah. And then the education students didn't want a bar of us because we also weren't totally them. So we just had our own little, yeah, little gang. But um yeah. I worked for a psychologist and I was going down that track completely I was going to be a psych that's that was yeah but he was the most negative controlling unkind man and it really just turned me off I like I don't want that to be my profession it's too negative Mm. um I saw teaching as much more positive and then yeah here I am and I'm so glad I'm so yeah, I do think you have to be a certain person to go into psychology. I think the idea of it is one thing, but the reality, and not not to say anything negative about the profession, but the idea that you sit 
day after day after day in a room, often isolated, hearing people's problems, you don't often consider, because the, the theory and the understanding that psychology offers you is incredible, but the reality of that profession Mm. would be, you'd have to have some very, very good boundaries. I could never do it because my boundaries already, I know I need to work on my boundaries. Yeah. You know, I'm not taking other people's issues on. Yeah. Yeah. I think I would have struggled with that too. Mm. Yeah. And, and, you know, he was really, he was very good at what he did, Mm. but he was so negative. And I just saw that as years and years of what you just said, Mm. taking on other people's problems and yeah, it's got to get to you eventually. Yeah. Yeah. I just saw teaching as much more positive, you know, a much more happy career. (laughs) Yeah. And I think the rewards are much more instantaneous too. You can make a difference quick in teaching. You know, you can teach someone a skill and they've got that skill for life. It's a really beautiful, it's a privilege really to be able to do that. Such a privilege. Yeah, I agree. And what are your thoughts on the way we're trained as teachers at university? It's an interesting one. I mean, I see the value of university because I guess you need mm. to have some background knowledge, especially yeah. if you're going straight in at 17, you, you need that time. You can't be a teacher straight away. But all our learning happens mm. on the job. All our learning happens in our practice. All our learning happens when we start teaching. So uni is good, but I just feel like it should be a lot more practical. There's a, you know, mm. maybe theory as you're practicing at the exact same time, sort of like mm. they used to nursing years ago when you're like you learn something and then you go and practice it at the hospital and then you learn something and you go and practice it I feel like if we did that a lot more and we were learning on the job as we went it would be a lot more beneficial Mm. I wonder why that's I and I I keep hearing too that the rounds seem to be even less and less and more limited and I'm not quite sure what the push is for that why we're not increasing rounds whether or not it's just a logistical nightmare because I'm sure allocating students to schools is really challenging or whether there's more of a research-based reason I don't I don't know it doesn't make a lot of sense to me I see I feel like teacher training should be much more of a traineeship absolutely than I agree. theoretical yeah. like an apprenticeship I guess where you're just there yeah. you're assigned to a school uh, maybe not one teacher because that's a lot of strain on a teacher for four years or but, Agreed. you know, maybe one yeah. school or a, a couple of schools and they're your schools that you were assigned to for that time and get to know the school, you get to know the, the teachers and you, you'll, you'll learn so much more like that, I think. And then you go back to uni, do a bit of theory and then you come back and you put it all into practice as you go. I agree. And I wonder too, though, so I did a dip ed, so I did one year and it was 10 yeah. weeks of prac. So that was great for me. But I know in education they were talking about the degree that they did observation for the first two years some people were saying in the third year they had no rounds at all or if they did it was minimal, like five days, and then it was like an influx in fourth year. But, I mean, you've done three years potentially of a job that you've had really no taste for. What if you don't even like it? What if you don't, if it's not for it's you? And so I just find that, you know, is, is it about retention? Is it about retention to keep them in for three years and you pay your fees for three years before you realise you don't like it? I don't know. Like that's... I really believe there's a lot of teachers out there that want student teachers there. They want to teach them. You know what I mean? Like I really feel like. I had someone on the other day that said exactly that, that you should have student teachers yeah. because they teach you so much, not only about what you know, it's really, it's really yeah. validating for what you've actually learned on the job, but also bring in a whole new perspective. Don't we want to impart everything we love about it? to new teachers that's really what we want to do so 
let them come from the beginning. I mean, I, I would happily have a student for four years if if I felt like that person really wanted to be a teacher and they were putting in. I mean, I've had some interns that I've had to fail. So that's a whole nother ball game. But, you you know, you if you had someone who was so keen and just wanted to learn, how great would that be? Extra pair of hands in your classroom, someone you could teach and who could teach you, like you said, and get you to reflect on your practices. So... Yeah, I think it'll be amazing, but I guess it's not up to us. <laughs> no. no, it's not. It's, it, is, it is a theme that yeah. I'm hearing, definitely. Maybe someone with some more power than us yeah. might do that one well, day. Well, you know, that's why we're going to podcast. Get it out there. <laughs> no, no, no yeah. that's right. So tell me about the experiences of having teachers that you haven't been able to pass. How was that for you? Oh, so one that stands out really to me was this male teacher I had and he rock up late, try and leave early. Can I go go early today? The worst part was he would fall asleep in classroom. So if he was observing me and I was teaching, he would be sitting at the back and he would fall asleep. Um, And the kids started noticing. Not ideal. Not ideal. So he was on a four-week crack, which was like a dip ed, which is what you did, but he yeah. he had done his first crack with another teacher in a school who had passed him with flying colours. And then his second crack, which was also his first oh. was with me, and then after me he was going to become a teacher. And I just was like, this guy is not ready. So I pulled him aside about the interim mark, so halfway, and said, hey, like I don't, I don't know if this is a good idea. If we keep going, you're probably going to fail. I asked him, why does he want to become a teacher? And he just told me that it's good for surfing. So he's like, I can get a surf in the morning. I can get a surfing in the afternoon. It's ideal. His attitude. Anyway, at the halfway mark, I was like, these are the things I kind of need to see, just a bit more effort, being prepared. He would come unprepared for his lessons. I'd have to pick up his lesson halfway through because he would just start fumbling and look at me desperately. Wow. And I'd have to jump in and just teach. So it was unfair to my kids as well. Yeah, we had the uni come in and intervention with him and he was determined to finish and he failed. So he had to redo his, I think he had to redo his whole, that whole prac again or another six months of uni or he's a teacher now though, so that's kind of scary. (laughs) What I don't understand is how you've got someone passing that behaviour with flight. Did something change between the previous round and and when you got him or what? Well, how is that possible? I mean, yeah, I know. Yeah. I spoke to her because she was a, a colleague yeah. of mine and she said she was approaching his prac like it was his first. First ever because he's only a dip head. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. So she's looking at it like this is his first ever prac. So he's doing pretty good for first ever prac. And I was looking at it like this is his last ever prac and he's about to become mm. a teacher. So mm. our expectations were very different. Yeah. 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 Well, mm-hmm. I think those are the hard conversations that need to be had though. I never, I'll never, i never forget having – she must have been in her second year, so she's only there for observations. And potentially I, I've always thought if you can have an opportunity to teach, you should. And so she had, I think, five days. I said, would you like to teach? And she's like, oh, and she was really, really nervous about it. And I said, look, we can do the lesson plan together. I think it's a good idea. I had some really beautiful classes and she did do like a 15-minute little task, freaked out the whole way through, wouldn't speak to the kids, looked at like there was no even opportunity to interact. The kids didn't know what she was saying. They were looking at me. Whenever I've had a student teacher, I've always been really 
made a conscious effort to to make them the power in the room. So I would often sit yeah. in the back and people would look at me and I'm like, I'm it's not it's not my class. I'm it's not my class. I'm ask, ask the teacher you've got. So I've always tried to do that. And I had to sit down with her at the end and I said, What is your end goal here? Your second year to go two years to go. I said, Why are you here? And she could not answer. She really did yeah. not know. I think it was comfortable. And I think that there's a lot of that that, well, I've been to school. I know what it's like. Same. I'll just do that because I've been in that position before but being a teacher versus yeah. being a student is completely different mm-hmm. yeah it looks easy I guess sometimes from the outside but when you're actually doing it it's a really challenging job you have to love it it's you just have to love it otherwise why it's too hard <laughs> I think it's actually part of your personality I think there's a certain there's, a, there's certain attributes that teachers have just personally that allow them yeah. to be good and passionate about the job. And I think that just like I could never be a data analyst, I would find that very challenging. I wouldn't enjoy mm. it. It's not part of my personality. It wouldn't be aligned with who I am. There are lots of people out there that are incredible at it, you know, and I so yeah. think that yeah, not everyone right. can teach, not everyone can do every job and that's okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's it's tough. It's tough being, yeah, a mentor teacher when you're in a situation like that and you have to really, you know, you have to kind of give them the hard talk. It's it's hard. But I with this guy, I somebody, I think it was something from the university actually said to me, "Would you like this man to teach your own child?" Mm. And my answer was a firm no, and then yeah. she said, "You you have to trust the instinct." So the uni was great because they really put it back on to my decision. But, yeah, no, he's, he is a teacher now, I know. So, yep, that's okay. <laughs> Hopefully there's yeah. been real improvement, let's hope, fingers crossed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right. What mm. do you believe are the really solid foundations that kids need by the time they leave primary school? What kind of skills do they need? I really do honestly feel like they need basic number reading mm-hmm. writing skills. Uh, or typing skills, whatever that looks like, being able to communicate with words. But I think the bigger things are that they believe in themselves, that they are curious, that they know how to research something, that they ask questions about things and inquire. Because I, I just think it doesn't really matter how well or not well you do at school. If you are an adult who loves learning and wants to yeah. learn and wants to find out more, you will. And you can do anything. Mm. So I just think they need skills of perseverance, resilience, not giving up. Those things I just think as a whole person are more important than being great at science or, I mean, sorry, no offence to the science teachers, but do you know what I mean? Like if they really want to be great at science, if they have all those other skills of, of how to persevere and how to try and research and resilience and then they will be great at science, you know. So yeah, yeah. that's kind of what I feel like the important part of primary school is. And then when they get to secondary, they can go and choose the subjects that they're really into. If they've got the basic literacy and numeracy, then they can have a crack at anything, you know. Yeah. And then hand over to the secondary teachers who are experts in the area and then off they go. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's my opinion anyway, yeah. How do we teach some of those skills that are not 
in a textbook, you know, the resilience and the empathy and the strength and determination? What kinds of things can we be doing to support those de- that development? Um, I think we need to structure or even make a plan about those skills. So instead yeah. of just thinking, oh, that'll they'll just kind of come up at some point during the year or um, I think you need to sit down and like in my position now with working with kids with autism, that that is a big focus because they they lack a lot of those skills just, you know, naturally. So we spend a lot of our week and a lot of our day doing that. It's also about being incidental and saying, using a situation and saying, okay, this happened today between these three children and pulling them aside and talking it through or even talking it through as a whole class and saying, what can we do differently? How can we approach this better? And making that a conversation in your classroom every day. Mm. I think getting them to hear stories about other people who have experienced that, sharing stories yourself of like who you who you are and how you get through things and how you've overcome obstacles and then letting them see that we're all human and we can all make mistakes and but making that a natural part of our classroom discussion in our in my position now we have what's called circle time so if there's a big situation in the playground we don't just come in and get started on maths we um pull a circle and it might take 50 minutes and we sit down and we discuss what happened? What could we have done differently? What skills should we have used? What could happen next time? And make a plan. And that's just a normal discussion. They love it. Yeah, it's good. How important do you feel it is to alleviate elements of the curriculum for things like that? It's vital. But then when you get from mm. the top down, mm. you need this many hours a week of literacy and this many hours a week of numeracy and this many hours a week of science. And yeah. Then it's hard. But I suppose we have the luxury in our situation with kids with autism is that we we have complete justification mm. to do that because they have individual education yeah. plans and they're being funded for their disability. We are allowed to say, well, we did not get to science this term because this was more important. Mm. The mainstream classroom, that becomes really, really tricky. Yes. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I think, look, I mean, I've, I've again, I've spoken to a number of educators and around that idea of stripping back the curriculum for this reason because there are incidental things that happen that actually increase the relevance of Absolutely. learning because it happened in the, in the playground or it happened within the students or we saw this on television last night or this is something that's happened in the community that we can pull as something directly relatable and teach a skill that doesn't fit into the boxes of, as you say, numeracy, literacy, science, et cetera, but... I think you know, develops the whole. Um, I really believe teachers need to be probably respected more as professionals. And if we, in some situations, and if we were, we could justify mm. why we did what we did with our class that day in that moment, why we decided to go down that track instead of teaching mm. science, for example. If you could justify it and you had anecdotal record of it and you explained why you felt that was the most valuable thing at the time, you couldn't do that all the time, obviously, but. No, surely the people who are your leaders would respect that and say, okay, I can see why you've, you've done that. Like in our situation, if we, don't, if we don't call a circle, we're not going to get any learning done that next session. There is zero point of us moving forward when two kids have punched each yes. other in the playground or how are they going to learn? They're, they're so angry. They're so full of emotion about the situation. If we don't mm. sort that out and calm down, there's... They, they might sit there and we might teach, but there's no learning going to happen. So 
if you can justify that as a professional, yeah, mm. it would be great. In your situation in the classroom with the students that you have, it's yeah. much more pronounced that the learning is not happening potentially, but that is not isolated to your situation with those particular students. That to me is a universal situation that, yeah, we can power through. Perhaps the yeah. students in a more mainstream class have the skills to hide it better, but you're absolutely right. If something really detrimental has gone on personally, socially for those kids, they're not learning anyway, are they? Absolutely. No. I And it, it comes back to knowing your students, doesn't it? Because yeah. if you can see that student and you know them and you're like, they are not themselves, something's going on here, then you take the time or you find another person in the school who can take the time whose job might be to take them out and t- have a chat, then mm. you've helped that child a lot more. Like I think of um, in year 12 for me, um, I was doing my ancient history exam and I was I was doing really well and it was our final exam and I had just had sort of a bit of a girly argument with some of my friends at lunchtime mm-hmm. about, it mm-hmm. was about school, it was just a bit of a drama and I went yeah. into that exam and I did not do my best. Yeah. My ancient history teacher got my results and came to me and said, what happened on this day? And then I just yeah. broke down in tears and I told her what had happened and she let me resit my exam. Wow. And I'm like, that's the kind of teacher you want you want to be, that person that's like this child isn't being who they normally are, something's going on here, I'm noticing, and and then giving them grace and giving them time and yeah, speaking to their heart rather than just getting ticking a box that exam's done, that, you know, that teaching's done. So, yeah, again, it just comes down to relationship, getting to know them. And and I think that's where the confliction can happen in teaching because there's the teacher in the room that sees the humanity within the kids and then there's the decision makers that have to ensure that teaching looks as though we're ticking all of these boxes And there is, you know, a real battle there, I think. I feel like there's not enough direct links between the decision makers and the classroom for that exact reason. They just have to be doing something. So if they're doing something, we need all these, we need all of these performers ticked to make sure that they're doing something. And unfortunately, you know, we've all had a, a bad teacher or a teacher that we felt wasn't passionate or that wasn't teaching us particularly well. And we all hold on to those teachers and so we want to make teachers so accountable because yeah. we don't want those people in the profession. And I get it and that theoretically, but the problem is that good teaching is very, very hard to measure, very, mm. very hard to measure. And we're using numerical data to measure teaching when it's yeah. teaching's about heart. No, you can't. You can't measure that. It's so true. <laughs> it's so it's so hard. Yeah. It's something that I struggle with all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about the decision to go to the school that you're currently at, yeah, and the role that you've got. Tell me about all of that. Um, it was a bit of a random decision. So we, I was working for Education Queensland for over 10 years and mm-hmm. I was part-time because I, was, I had a, a baby or he was not a baby, he was four, and yep. we were trying to fall pregnant again. It had taken a long time, yep. our first baby, and I just sent, I wasn't enjoying my job. I lost all love for it. I just couldn't, yeah. just didn't want to be there. And I was, I thought I'd never get to that point in my teaching career. So I just really sensed in myself to resign. And what were you doing? What were you doing at Education Queensland, sorry, prior? I was working grade three classroom two days a week. So job share. 
yeah, just okay. with being a mum. So I just spent a lot of time really praying about what to do because I, no one mm. resigns from their full-time permanent position with the Queensland government. Like, why would you do that? Yeah. Anyway, I really sent to just quit. And I said to my husband, I think I should quit. And he said, I totally agree with you. So I quit my job and um, within mm. two weeks we were pregnant with our second baby and had taken a That's long awesome. time. That's awesome. I love story. Yeah. So um, he came along. And our youngest are the same age, aren't they? They are too, yeah. Is that right, too? Yep. How fun yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot how... Yeah, interesting two-year-olds can be. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep, so he was here and and then in 2019 my husband suffered burnout, which I didn't think was a real thing mm. until I saw it happen to him. And in what role was he at that point? So he's a senior engineer uh, working in mm. water and sewage and for a private company. They were incredible. Okay. They were so supportive of him. They got He got help straight away they reduced his hours they gave him as much time as he needed but in that time I jokingly said I'll go full-time and you go part-time okay (laughs) if I find the best job in the world I'll do it and so this job came up at the school I'm at now working just with kids with autism and I applied and yeah, I got it. It was it was incredible. It's incredible. So um, our whole world shifted really. We had a one-year-old and I was all of a sudden not going to be with him and that was heartbreaking. I did cry a lot. But my husband is just yeah. amazing at part-time. He's so domesticated. Mm-hmm. He does all the groceries and most of the housework and a lot of the cooking and he looks after our one year, uh, two-year-old now. So yeah, so here I am in this job that I've done for 12 months. And what was the pull towards, obviously, it was very clear that you're working with students with autism. What was it about that that was interesting for you to apply for that job? Uh, I wanted a challenge and I really needed to justify to myself mm. leaving my children, my own children, was going to be really worth, yeah. worthwhile for the students that I taught yep. just for myself professionally. I have never worked in a Christian school. I've been a Christian for a long time, but I just never felt that it was what I should do. I always thought I should be in the public system as a Christian mm-hmm. with those values. So then I was sort of like it would yeah. be really cool to work in a school with other Christian teachers and be able to speak openly about that. Yeah. That was also a, a bit of a bonus, but I I honestly did not think that I would get the position because I don't have specific experience in autism. I don't have specific training in autism I just have classroom experience and behavior support experience so a big part of what I why I wanted to talk to you other than the fact that I just enjoy our conversations (laughs) on Instagram was the fact that you have this background in autism because in the public sector in a mainstream school we do tend to have more high functioning Mm -hmm. autistic students or students with autism come in with very little training I don't know if that's good or bad because I then have to get to know that individual rather than having a a global understanding of what to do. But I still feel incredibly ill-equipped to deal and I have actually had students diagnosed in the years that I've taught them so they have had zero skills before. And so I just would love to have any kind of advice, support, even just things to consider 
that you can offer me and the people listening around students on the spectrum? So there's a saying that goes, uh, if you've met one student with autism, you've met one student with autism. So they're all completely different. But I like okay. that you yeah. don't have a global understanding of it because I don't think you need it. Yeah. I think, like you said, you have to get to know that individual student. Okay. Being in secondary for you, it's great because you the kids can sort of explain a bit better to you because they they might have a bit more yeah. will be able to speak to you about it I learned this year we taught upper yeah. primary lower secondary and we just spoke openly so I would find out something about autism like that I'd researched and then we'd have circle and I'd say hey guys this is what someone said and they would dispute it or they would agree with it and then they would explain to me why experienced or an autism expert who didn't have autism said that too many visuals on the wall in your classroom is overwhelming for students and makes them feel anxious and I had quite a lot of well not quite a lot but I had some things on the wall in our classroom displayed their schoolwork and so we had a circle the next day and I said hey guys this is what an autism expert said what do you think and they were like oh if you take things off the wall and the wall is bare we feel anxious so that's Wow. Okay. So everything I learned from research or reading, I would come to school and just ask them directly and say, does this make sense to you? Is this okay for you? Do you agree with this? Or, you know, they were just able to tell us everything. Another big thing was a student diagnosed with autism is somebody who doesn't socially understand other people. That's sort of, you know, the general Mm. idea. Our students said to us, we do understand other autistic people, we just don't understand other neurotypical people. So that diagnosis or that criteria is not even correct either. You know, they do get each other. They totally get each other. They just don't get neurotypical people sometimes. So, yeah, so I think my biggest advice is, like you you already said, is get to know them. Ask them straight Mm. up, is this okay? Is this too much for you? Is this helpful or is this overwhelming? There's a big sensory thing. Our classrooms at our school have soundproof walls, tinted windows, reduced glare. We use a lot of visual timetabling, visual stuff for them. They really, I think one thing I've learned is across all of them is they really like structure or at least to know what's Mm. going to happen next. So if you throw a spanner, that can create anxiety but also teaching them, hey, how do I handle this? Because guess what? Real life is going to do that to you. Sometimes you are going to be driving and you'll get a flat tyre and you're going to be late or how do you handle these situations in real life? And we purposefully do that to them sometimes just to challenge them, Mm. talk it through. So, yeah, each, each autistic child is an individual and it's about getting to know them and what they need. Is that helpful? I don't know. It's very helpful because, do you know why? Because it makes me feel as though it's okay not to have all the answers. And I think a lot of teachers, including myself, can find that very challenging to not know, to not have the plan, to not have the textbook, to not have the research. You know, it would be so much easier for you, Shannon, to say to me, read this book, it'll be be great, it'll tell you everything. We as teachers, I think, are much more comfortable in that space where, I've got this book, this is what it tells me to do. If I turn to this page, this is the exercise, this is what I'm going to apply. It's much more unnerving and I'm better at it as an experienced teacher but certainly as a young teacher this would have been very uncomfortable is 
being okay in that in the not knowing and in that middle space of well what are we going to do together collaboratively as, as and as a community rather than me as the authoritarian here yep. with the plan yeah and I, I do see that that's where education's going anyway I mean the push towards student agencies incredible and you know in bringing students to the table is really important yeah. but I think hearing from you as somebody working with autistic students or students with autism is that we need to let them be part of their own journey rather than telling them and doing things to them. Absolutely. So I think that's really in a way of validating and actually, yeah, takes the pressure off a little bit that I don't necessarily need to know what to do. I can move and work with a student. Yeah, you really don't. The other thing um, obviously is communication, not just with the student but with their families, with other mm. professionals who are working with them because it's not it's so frustrating if they're going to see a speechy and a psychologist and you don't actually ever speak to those professionals. So collaborating with them yeah. and trying to make sure that you regularly meet with them or regularly emailing them to say, this is what's happening in the classroom, what's happening in your sessions. Are we are we kind of all doing the same thing here? Are we being consistent? Um, getting insight from the parents is you, you, they live with them. So you can't, that's, that's incredible too. Um, but the other thing we really learned this year was, uh, sorry, in 2020 was um, educating the students on autism. Some of them didn't mm. even really understand what it was. They didn't really even yeah. get it. They just saw it as a label. We started educating them and they were blown away. Like they were so liberated and they were so relieved to find that what we were educating them made so much sense and they finally fit into who they were. This year I'm teaching a younger year level and I've already got permission from all the parents to be very open about autism in our classroom and make sure that we're talking about it so openly and the kids are really, really aware of who they are and, you know, because it's it's not going to go away. It's who they are. And they should just embrace it. There's so much value to it. It's incredible. So, yeah, that's also a really good thing, yeah. especially if you have students in secondary who are just being diagnosed, making sure that they yes. understand what it, what that is and owning it. Mm. And you'll, you'll see a change in them straight away, I think. And, yeah, offering them value in who they are rather than it being an affliction yeah. because it's not. No. And I I mean I understand why it's considered a disability I guess for funding purposes in Australia, yeah. but I don't see it as one. <laughs> you know, like don't if if it was Yeah, it's just, it's just the label they have to have for the funding, isn't it yeah. really? It's the label they have to have for the funding to support the more social aspects that are never done in mainstream, which to be fair probably could be done more in Absolutely. mainstream. Anyway. So yeah, I mean, that might be controversial saying that, that I don't see it as a disability. But if if that is, then don't we all have disabilities? Don't we, you know, we, none of us are perfect and none of us can manage every situation. So I think it's just about teaching them what they can do. And and another thing is we have a, um, a rule in our classroom that autism is a reason, but it's never an excuse. So you've got to learn yes. to manage, it, manage what you can cope with and what you can't and then how to deal with situations when it's not quite going the way you expected. How are parents with that kind of thought process? Are they happy that you're saying that or is that yeah, they confronting love it. that they can't use it? Okay, okay. Yeah. So far they love it, but we make sure that we communicate that with them first and just just check that, that that's okay. But they want 
they don't yeah. want their kids to be living with them for the rest of their lives, you know, like they want them to be able to manage life and yeah. handle things. And and so if we say, hey, guys, it's back on you and you've got to handle this, then um, we'll teach you how, the parents are stoked with that and they get right on board with that. It's almost a relief for them too that they don't have to do everything their child says or wants just because yeah. they have autism. Does that make sense? Yeah. On your Instagram page, it has that you are an autistic ambassador. So what does that mean? Well, that's the level I've given myself to yeah, teach people. Like I just, I just pretty much what we just spoke about is just about getting teachers to make sure that they don't freak out. Oh, I've got an autistic child in my class is, is about getting to know them as an individual and, and um, not thinking you have to know all the answers. And I just want to promote it positively too that it's not a bad thing it's not Mm. a scary thing it's not it's it's actually a really beautiful thing um it's hard it's challenging for them you know and for the teachers but it's also such a privilege to teach a child with autism and really get to know them and find out how they look at things they look at the world so differently like (laughs) but it's cool like so I think I'm just trying to promote it as a positive and not something that's daunting and scary for teachers to have with autism in the mm. class. Would you be promoting early diagnosis or do you not think it matters how early students or individuals know that they fall on the spectrum? Early is amazing because you can teach them the skills from a young age on how to manage mm-hmm. themselves differently or, or how to manage situations differently, I should say. But if they get diagnosed later, it's the same. You have to do the same thing. It's just they've learnt certain ways of handling life and they have to unlearn that to cope. Yeah. So I think early diagnosis is amazing, but it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Girls often get diagnosed a lot later. I don't know if the students in your in high school that have been late diagnosed were female, but they they generally tend to not hide it, but cope in a certain way that, that isn't as noticeable as, as boys with autism. So that's yeah. hard. I will say this one student who was diagnosed in year eight was a boy and it was, to me, there was certainly something that needed to be supported in him. His behaviour was incredibly erratic and like that it was very obvious that something was going on. I'm not certainly not an expert, so I was never going to say what it was, yeah. but there were certainly interventions that needed to be occurring there. On the flip side, I did have a student, a girl in year seven, and I was pulled aside and told that she was autistic or a student with autism, and I would never have picked it yeah. as a teacher. Never, never picked yeah. it. There were a couple of little things that I would have been able to explain that away with just other. Yeah. So, yeah, I would never have picked her, but she had been diagnosed early. And, yeah, whether that's – it's the chicken or the egg. Is it because she was diagnosed early and she had all the strategies? Is it because she was a girl and had the opportunity of or, – or, and can hide it better? I'm not quite sure. Yeah. But, yeah, I would never – Yeah, well, girls, having, girls tend to on. be able to, like – I think they just do this naturally. This is the way their brains work, girls with autism. They sort of go, if I, if I act like the girl who the teacher seems to be praising a lot – then I'll just fit right in and it'll be fine. And then so that that student hardly mm. gets noticed as somebody who might have autism because they just like learn how to watch and fit into the mould, but their outbursts are really heavy at home because they have to hold it all together all day. Yes. Whereas boys will just let it out. Generally, 
wherever they are in, yeah. So um, early diagnosis is, is it, I think it's important, but it's not, it's not the end of the world if they're not. Yeah. And for the families, I think kids older are relieved when they find out, oh, I'm, yeah, something, yeah, this makes so much sense. I think too, I mean, you put up Instagram page, The Life Autistic, who I started following after you put that up. He's got a YouTube yeah. channel and everything. I'll put that information in the show notes. But he was amazing. He is a father of three children. He works in a professional job. Yeah. He's highly successful in life in general. But the way that he's able to discuss how he's been able to get to this point, the kind of strategies he's put into place. In fact, he had the other day, it was on his stories about where would you sit at the Christmas dinner table? I don't know if you saw this. So, and, and he has a number of people with autism following him. And so they were, they were contributing to this discussion about where they would sit at the dinner table because if things are overwhelming, they need to be able to leave quickly. The contributions were saying things like, but they don't want to look like yeah. they're overwhelmed. So they wanted to sit in a position where it was okay for them to have a job to leave to yeah. do. It was really, really fascinating where they decided to position themselves and how they'd really considered, you know, their position at the table based on the things that they knew would yeah. come up at a family gathering at Christmas. And I find his content specifically to be so yeah. eye-opening for somebody who is neurotypical mm-hmm. because he just he's incredible at explaining it and also the discussions he, he generates with other autistic individuals is really yeah. fantastic yeah he's got some good strategies on how he gets how he copes with things that create anxiety yeah and and as a teacher allowing yeah. those students yeah. in your class to do those things like that might seem well that's not really allowed you know like we have a student we had a student last year who would exit the classroom because he was overwhelmed now normally you would say oh you you don't leave like you don't just get up and leave but he and I, we chatted a lot and that was one of his strategies that he needed to do. So we allowed him to go out there and lay on the ground for as long as he needed and he came back when he was ready and, you know, like it's 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 okay. Like we just have these certain ways that that's how our classroom should be and that's how we teach and you can't do that and, and, and letting them be individual and think about the bigger picture. Obviously, as long as they're not abusing the power, yeah. <laughs> you know, but... Yeah. Well, I think I think the fact is letting go of your ego a little bit and not thinking that it's yeah. all about you all the time because it's probably not really about you at all. And if you can understand that that's what they need to do for their own mental health, it's not about disrespecting you. It's actually about coming back to you in a place where they can learn. But as you say, that's all the things that you have to have in a conversation because if people are just getting up and walking out, I'm sure they would be just as confused if you did that. That's right. You know, in the middle of a classroom, if you got up and work, they'd be like, what are yeah. you doing? This is not what's supposed to be happening. So it's all about being informed, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, having little – so in a secondary classroom, it would be different. In a mainstream classroom, it would be different because not everyone's allowed to just get up and walk out and leave, you know. So yeah. it's also about if that child, that student is okay to also educate the other students about it. And, and explain to them, like, what, what is autism and what does it look like and what does it feel like and why does Johnny have to walk out sometimes and have a break, you know, and that the other students understanding that too. I don't think we give them enough credit, all of them, to understand 
that if we gave them the knowledge, they would be a lot more compassionate and understanding about each individual and what they need. So, yeah, and then you're not adding any shame to it. Sally, has, Sally is autistic and this is what happens. So, Well, that's what I remember that particular boy who was diagnosed, as I said, in year eight, he was quite violent and I do remember one time he pushed someone yeah, and into into something that he was he they the other student had really hurt themselves, and it got to the point that as lovely as his class was, they were beginning to turn because they were so they were ultimately afraid of his behaviour. And when he was yeah. diagnosed, he was pulled out of the class, or he wasn't there, or something, and so they were alone. And I actually spoke to the wellbeing team, and I said I need to talk to these kids about. And I was their science teacher; it wasn't like I was their pastoral care, but I'd seen too much yeah. of what had gone on. And they said, yeah, you know, come to us if you need any additional support. But I literally just opened the conversation about what's been happening because they they had yeah. felt terrorised by this boy. Yeah. And so I needed to validate the experiences that they had had rather than, well, he has he has autism, he's been diagnosed now, you need to be compassionate because, yes, you do, yes, that's ideal, but you can't erase the things that had already happened in the class as well. And so... We had these really big open. We had this big open conversation, validating what had happened, and how they felt about it, and then trying to make the connections as to why, because they couldn't yeah. understand why you would do that. And so then I was trying yeah. to, and again, I, I felt relatively ill-informed, but I was trying to offer them the why because I think a lot of neurotypical people need that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you can understand the intent behind something, you can kind of go, all right, I, because I didn't want this poor boy to be diagnosed and to have a reason and to be putting all these strategies in place and for the students not to be willing to give him a second chance. Yeah. And I wanted them to be able to clean the slate when he came back in. And yeah, it wasn't perfect. Of course it wasn't, but at least they could be more supportive on the journey he was then going to start undertaking. Yeah. I mean, something that would have been helpful too would be for him and them to have a discussion when he felt able you know and he felt calm yeah and for him to say sorry to them you know because he needed to take some ownership of his behavior and that's what we do a lot is like you 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 yes you were anxious and yes you had an outburst but you still need to apologize for that that's not okay you know because those kids need they had like that's traumatic for them to be violently abused by another student constantly So I think what you did was brilliant and it just creates in them a lot more empathy for other humans. You know, Mm. when they're out in the street and they see someone melting down, well, now they have a different perspective. Maybe there's a lot more going on for that person, you know. So amazing what you did. That's so cool. Well, well, you know, as I said, but this is what they don't teach you at university. I didn't know if that was the right thing to do, but I felt I couldn't let it, I couldn't pretend that it hadn't happened. And I also wanted to give the student who had been diagnosed with autism a fighting chance of being able to come back in without the stigma of his behaviour as well. So I tried. And so you weren't thinking about yourself, you were thinking about them as people. How do they feel about this? How do they feel when they come to school every day and this happens? And how does he feel and what's going to happen next? So you weren't looking at them as names on your class role you're looking at them as humans you know and that's how we eat all the time like human first curriculum second absolutely (laughs) but you know really yeah we're going to send them out into the world as humans they're not 
they're not going to take their school report around with them. It's not going to be like, mm-hmm. if you've got an A in English, you're going to excel in life. It's not, that's not, our, I, I just feel like that's not our job anymore, really, like our shift. I mean, it is, but it's not the, the priority. It's, it's about them as humans. And do you, So that's that was going to be one of my other questions is, has your definition of what a teacher is and the role of a teacher, has that evolved while being in the job? Totally. Has that changed? Yeah. As soon as I took mm. a behaviour role, I did behaviour mm. support in North Queensland and as soon as I took that role, I just realised that it's just about, it's about who they who they are, where they've come from, where they're going. Unfortunately, when I worked north, up north, there was some kids in juvenile detention and we were working with them, trying to educate them. And, and I just realised actually their reading level is really irrelevant <laughs> to yeah. who they are and how they're going to cope with life and where they're going to go next, you know. So that shifted me a lot, just seeing. I think a lot of teachers maybe never see that or don't ever experience the realities of what some kids go through and so then it's really hard to shift your view of how to teach them when I became a mother I'm not sure if that happened to you as well Laura but when I became a mother gosh Mm. the way I taught changed incredibly because instead of saying you must do this now and finish it right now I was more just about well if this was my child what would I want the teacher to do and how would I want the teacher to approach Mm -hmm. it and at the end of the day it's quality over quantity and yeah so yeah massive shift first year teaching was all about beautiful neat diary <laughs> making sure we're getting all yes. done in the week report cards perfect and at reading levels progressing and and now that's all important but it's not it's no longer my priority yeah I think becoming a parent has softened me yeah a lot and it's shifted the focus rather than focusing on what's your goal in terms of career job and that's what I was always focused on. I was still focused on the kids but I think I was more focused on well if I can ensure that they get the result that they want I work with you and in supporting you in getting there then I've sort of set you up for life but now I think that that is a smaller part now as to what I would focus on yeah as a mum now there's that that has shifted everything yeah really yeah yeah Mm -hmm. it really really does change I I sometimes look back and think oh like some of I I remember when I the first year I taught prep there was a little boy and he did not want to leave his mother like he would scream and cling to her and I would think gosh like just what's wrong with this child and you know like get him he'd stay calm and then we'd turn around and he'd be out at the gate like he'd be like like a shot at the front mm-hmm. gate trying to find her scream for her and I'd think oh like I'd get a bit frustrated uh as soon as I became yeah. a parent he came back to my memory and I just felt awful that I didn't Did I do enough <laughs> yeah did I handle that right now because I was just like, you're not sitting on the mat, <laughs> poor child. Yeah. You know, and then yeah. I thought about that mother and I was like, oh, gosh. Yeah, it really does change and, you know, but, I mean, that's that's life, isn't it? You grow and you change and you learn as you go. And so, yeah, definitely being a parent um, I think it's just added to, to me as a teacher. How has technology shifted the way you've taught or how important is technology in your life, education, all that kind of thing? Uh, well, it's very important at the moment because I work in a school with kids with autism and that's their whole life. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. I mean, I started teaching with chalkboards, so yeah. there's been a dramatic change in that that's 16 years. 
Yeah, I love that kids who don't want to write or handwrite can use technology to communicate their thoughts and that what they know on the inside can come out if they use technology, whereas they might mm-hmm. have left a blank piece of paper years ago, you know. I love that I had a boy 2020 who he couldn't read but he wanted to feel very much like he was like everybody else. And so we used text to talk so that he could just click on information and it would read it out loud to him. And that was his way of mm. getting knowledge and understanding and feeling part of everyone. And that would not have happened years ago. Or if it did, it would have been yeah. a teacher trying to sit there and read everything to him, you know. So technology is incredible. I love it. I honestly feel like I probably need to learn more about it and use more in my classroom in different ways. But online teaching de- definitely helped with that. We just got shoved into the deep end to, like, go for it. And yes. on the job, it was, it was great. I learned so many skills this year, sorry, 2020, that I would never have learned. So yeah, I think it's so beneficial. Mm. Mm. We were having a very interesting conversation prior to recording about being online and our presence online and mm. how both of us have felt somewhat conflicted by the benefits of the community created online, but also the the element of fear of how much you put online and how recognisable you are and, and the implications of that. So what has kind of shaped that conflict for you about being online? I did years ago listen to a detective from cyber safety from the Australian Federal Police who showed us how quickly and easily it could be to find where a student is, where they live, what school they go to, and just find out everything about them. And I also learned that there's so many creepy people out there. I just sometimes I find really, I don't know if you feel like this, Laura, but if you take a photo of your child and you put it on Instagram, somebody on the other side of the world can then have your child on their phone screen. Does that make sense? So somebody... In London, then is looking at their phone and looking at your child on their phone in London, and it just freaked me out. So, when I had my son in 2014, I decided to go off all social media. I didn't want him on there. I didn't feel like it was fair for me to take photos of his whole life and put it out into wherever for people to see. And I only came back on Instagram mm. just to support my brother with his new software. So obviously there is a podcast on that. There is. To it. Yeah. So I am like conflicted yep. every day as well. But I think I'm just yep. scared of how easily somebody who isn't a great or a safe person can access our information and our, our private lives. I had a similar situation. I've spoken about it on the podcast, Rise to the Challenge. We had... I think it was a police officer, similar sort of thing, who talked about how they identified predators online, what they were doing, and it was ultimately by behaving like them. And as you say, things like standing somebody in front of a a landmark, a street sign, having the school uniform with the logo, all of those sorts of things were part of ways of tracking kids. Also things like notifying people about going away. Yeah, They were talking about the fact that that then burglaries because people saw that you were your house would be vacant so I was notified of that too and I think that we're in a similar spot generationally in that the younger generation grew up 
with social media as teens and are much more digital natives than perhaps we are. And we came into it at a time where we were either starting teaching or at university where there was so much fear about protection. And then you have the older generation who are so far removed from the idea that there's anything unsafe about it. I still remember a friend of mine at high school had, I'm going to say MSN or something, some kind of digital platform in which she was communicating with a woman in the States. And they became such great friends that this woman came and stayed with their family. And I was at high school at the time and we were horrified as high school students. Like, what do you mean you have met someone online and you're now friends? What do you mean? Because that's how it was drilled into us that you don't know who these people are. We all had fake names online. We all had silly emails that didn't have on it because that's how we were taught. Be scared. Be really, really scared. Online is a scary place. You don't know who you're talking to. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately or fortunately, I'm not sure. That has certainly carried through with me. And I only got Instagram this year because I was trying to get out there for tutoring. And I'm like, I don't have a job right now. (laughs) I need to get myself out there. And it was under duress, to be fair. I was pushed by people saying, you need to do this. Otherwise, no no one's on Facebook, Laura. So not people that you want to be tutoring at least. So I was the same as you and I've loved it. I've loved the creative element. I've loved the connection, the community, all of that. And through Victorian lockdown, it was actually very important. Mm -hmm. But I'm like you in that I'm conflicted constantly about, and I never put my kids' faces on Mm -hmm. for that reason. You know, you see the younger generation that are using it so well and with such confidence and they kind of know how to hustle on there. And I think that's incredible, but I can't, I can't fully embrace. Mm. I just can't. I just think yeah. it's a fine line. Like I, one of my cousins is, she's going to be a teacher. She's only 21, so she's nearly going to be a teacher. But some of the photos that she has on her personal Instagram account are not going to suit the profession. <laughs> and I feel like yeah. if someone wanted to in a few years to come, they can find those photos and it could ruin her career. Mm. And I just think that, you know, uh, kids especially don't have the cognitive ability to make those decisions for their future and they are putting whatever they want out there, you know. And I think sometimes when you just have your phone in your hand, you forget that these photos that you're looking at, everyone in the whole world could see, you know, if you're not careful. Mm. So I think we just have to keep educating kids about it. And, yeah, I, I struggle. I even struggle with, like, do people really even care? Like, <laughs> Yeah, I I mean, I was really worried yesterday because our coffee machine broke. I was distressed and I put that on Instagram. But I was like, who, like, does anyone really care? Like, it's just, you know what I mean? So, but obviously, people do care. Did you get some DMs about that though? I'm sure I messaged you. I was like, I'm devastated. Totally. I got lots of people upset. Like, you were upset. There's like, there was a lot of people that DM'd me and were totally, and I love that they were so caring and compassionate. But I, was so surprised that people really care, you know. Like I was just trying to be funny. We were distraught, don't worry, because it blew smoke (laughs) and we did not know how we were going to cope. We'd only had one coffee as well. We usually have two. So we were like, oh, gosh. 
and change our whole day to make sure we got to go and buy a new one. Yeah, yeah I just still sometimes find it funny that people would care about that. Like, yeah, so it's a constant struggle for me. It is, and it's also such a hard one because I find the facade of social media to be a challenge, something that I don't want to perpetuate either. So there's this really I want to be authentic and real and I don't want to make things look like they're perfect, but at the same time, how much do I want to share it's yeah. all of that. It's all so much to consider. So much to consider. It really is. It's a it's a whole literacy in itself, really. Like trying to be yeah. social media savvy and understand why you like. I just have to keep thinking, why am I doing this? Because it's it takes mm. up some of my day. Like I try really hard to um, not post anything unless it's the evening when the boys are in bed because yeah. I don't I don't really want to be sitting there while like I'm spending time with them or. You know, so I, I think of things in the day, oh, yeah, that might be interesting for people. But then I'm like, why am I spending my life? On, like, why, why do I spend part of my day thinking about posting something? Do I want to be this person? I don't know. Like, but like you said, also, there's so much positive because, I mean, you and I chat. I chat to so many other teachers that it's incredible. Like, and there's so many brilliant people out there that are doing really great things in their classrooms. And Without Instagram, you wouldn't know that. You wouldn't see no. that, you know. There's so much collaboration. I love the sharing. I think it's amazing. So, mm. yeah, I don't know. Who, who who helps us with this, Laura? I don't know. And that's, I mean, I'm, very, so outspoken. I'm very outspoken about it because I don't think we, we are in this odd space. Kids yeah. are doing it one way. We can see as more mature adults the detriment that could potentially come from that. We're not talking about it. I don't know. It's a very... I think we're all very scared and I get it. Yeah. But I, I do think like everything we've said today, those open conversations, those raw conversations where there's no right or wrong, we're just trying to navigate it together in a safe way. I think that has to happen somehow yeah. and educators being comfortable that we don't really know the answer. We just have to know yeah. bring case studies in and go, well, these are potentials that could happen. You could, by 21, you could have a multi-million dollar business online by posting about your yeah. life. That is that is a possibility. So there is great things that can come from that. But at the same time, you could be giving away so much. And I remember I was watching the David Letterman, he's got an interview series currently out, and Kim Kardashian was on there. Mm-hmm. And I was listening to her and she talks about, because she's a, obviously a prolific oversharer, that she was robbed at gunpoint in Paris And they found out later that this had been a two-year planned situation because they knew every year they went here, they knew where they stayed, they'd they'd scoped out the hotel the year before, but it was all because they could track her and they knew what what jewellery she had on her too because she'd posted throughout the week what jewellery she was wearing, fashion week, and I remember her saying something like, like, where's the ring? They knew what they wanted to get, the most expensive jewellery, because she'd been posting about it. So, you know, I mean, she's done incredibly well financially and publicly in terms of what she's been able to achieve in her profession. But what's the flip side of that? Yeah, that's scary, isn't it? Mm. I, I also remember that AFP guy years ago, he showed us inside a pornographic site mm. and of where not great humans <laughs> go oh and he, he showed us family photos of people people who have just got their family photos taken just like of their kids like cute little pixie photos or whatever and 
that that was on these sites. There was just thousands and thousands of photos of kids that people they had screenshots like g-rated family photos on there g-rated like you know your average person has put on like look we got family photos today at the park and they're on facebook and now they're on this site because people have screenshotted or just copied the photo and taken it and it's on this site for people to subscribe to and use for the wrong reasons so that was a big thing for me i was like uh don't ever want to think about my children are on that all the students I teach are on that site, you know, like, yeah. And, you know, it's not necessarily going to directly harm our kids, but I mean, that maybe that particular situation, but it's just, yeah, I just don't want to give them any kind of anything to use, you know, like. I mean, it's not at all. So, yeah, it's a fine line between, like you said, it's like a, it could be it's business, you know. People are using it for business. Mm-hmm. People are making a lot of money to be influencers and, market their businesses for literally free you know but it's a risk if we if we share too too much I guess yeah and I think that it's just that understanding of how to create the boundaries that we talk about and and mm. ensuring you are protected and knowing how to protect yourself yeah and again I don't think I have all the answers for that either but I I do think that that needs to be a focus for sure yeah yeah just another thing that we have to teach kids <laughs> Exactly. And then I have don't forget about all of the curriculum. Yes, yes. I have two more questions for you. Yeah. The second last one is what are some of the big lessons you've you've learnt in life? The biggest lesson I've learned is that it's just all about people. If you care and you listen and you give someone the time of day, like that's the most important thing. I always sort of sort of think like the end of your life, like do you I'm not in a morbid way, but what sort of legacy do you want to leave? What sort of person do you want to be? Like, do you do you want to be that person that gave everyone time and listened to them or gave them a shoulder or just had opened your home? Or do you want to be the person that got things done? I'm very mm. task orientated. So this is a hard mm. thing for me to do because I like, even with my own children, I just like to get things done and make sure the house is clean. And I have to stop and say, no, well, I don't want them to remember that oh, mum was just always busy or doing housework. I just I want them to remember that I sat on the floor with them and played and we wrestled mm. and went riding on our bikes. Like that's, you know, but it's a constant conflict for me because it's not how I'm wired. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Love is an action, not a feeling. And I think if we love people and serve people and teach children how to serve others and love them, then it's a benefit to everybody. Mm. And we might have a happier world, less angry. Yeah. Well, and, and just understanding that everyone comes from different walks of life too and not using our yardstick to measure everybody. Yeah, and taking – I've been talking a lot with my husband about this recently, but just taking people for who they are, you know, like often we have an expectation of how people should be and how they should treat us and how they should behave. And and yet if you just take them for who they are, it releases them and releases you and allows you to just enjoy them mm. just as they are and trying to make them be someone else. What's that? It's a yeah. famous quote. I think it's Maya Angelou who says, when people show you who they are, believe them. And I think that you're right, that we yeah. often put our expectations on other people based on their roles or their or their positions or what we want them to be. It just leads to frustration, doesn't it? Because yeah. I'm such an expectation person, like, and if my expectations aren't met, I get I get frustrated. But if you if you just let it all go and take situations and people exactly for who they are and where they're at, 
you're not going to get frustrated and they're not going to feel that and everyone's happier. Mm. What are your hopes for education in the future? I would love to see teachers treated more professionally. I would love to see more primary school male teachers because our boys Mm -hmm. keep being forgotten, I feel like. And just probably just a more practical, real-life approach, giving children experiences of of what it's really like. That's so hard to do. It's so hard to do because we're in a classroom sitting at desks, you know, that's really tricky. But I think, like, our conversation about technology, that opens up so much. You know, we can see the world from our laptop. So that's really cool as well. And, um, yeah, I think if we have a more practical classroom, we are going to meet the needs of more students and then we won't have as Mm. many kids feeling like they're failing or feeling like they can't do it because we're giving them opportunity to do the things that they're good at rather than what what requires them to sit down and write something or, you know, like, yeah, yeah, there's just a few things that I think would be great. I, I would love more male teachers in primary school. I just I'm not sure why that doesn't happen. I don't know. Is it is it more prevalent in Victoria? But in Queensland, it's sort of two is to 25. I'm certainly seeing more males move into education. I would look, I would say in the secondary setting, it'd be at least in my school, a third to two thirds. So it's not too, it's not, it's not, it's not 50, 50, but it's, it's not as imbalanced as I think. I mean, when I went to primary school, we had one yeah. male teacher in the whole primary school and he eventually moved up to AP and principal. So that was the thing too is I would find that often a lot of the male teachers when I was at school had much more leadership agendas and so would remove themselves from the classrooms eventually, which, I mean, boys really look up to male teachers. They need that role mm-hmm. modelling. So, yeah, I mean, I can't speak to primary to be fair because I'm not in that situation, but at, at the school I'm at, it's certainly, yeah, it's it's better than it has been for sure. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that that's really good because I feel like adolescents need, they need male influence as well. But, yeah, I just, absolutely in my experience, primary school, it, there's not a lot of males. And you're right about, I mean, that's a whole other discussion, but that whole like male teachers moving straight up into leadership really, mm. um, yeah, really kind of makes me think a lot. Like why is that happening? Why do they get those opportunities over female teachers more as well? And, yeah, why are they not happy to just stay in the classroom? Because that's really, you know, the kids need them there. So some brilliant, brilliant male teachers that the kids need. So it's interesting. But I'd love to see a shift in that. That would be great. I think personally that's a societal situation because, Males and females deem success to be different things. Yeah, agree. That's yeah. that to me is a great issue that you know males are not successful unless. And I mean that's again a very general statement, but you know even even look at the gender role shift you've done in your house. Like that's not a that's a discussion you have to have rather than an assumption. You yeah. know, so I think that those things are happening, but we're still very gendered in so many ways in terms of the way society deems males and females should should show up in society. I mean, it's it's moving, but yeah. it's still there. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Thank you so much for all of your time and your discussions. And I've loved connecting with you on Instagram. I'll put your information in the show notes if anyone would like to follow you. But you've been just such a wealth of, of knowledge. And I love the fact that you just got such a kind heart and yeah, that real focus <laughs> on the humanity and teaching. Oh, thank you so much for um, yeah letting me have a chat with you, Laura. I really appreciate it. It's so good to actually talk to you. It's really cool. So Thanks so much.